We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. I want to welcome everybody out there and especially to welcome uh, Professor John Hattie, uh, Professor Emeritus at Melbourne University. Um, John, a few months ago, Brendan joined my team at Exemplars full-time and we started brainstorming that we wanted to do some webinars and some podcasts about best practices in education. We wanted to share um, what, what really is effective in the classroom. And our focus is really in the math classroom. And we started brainstorming like, well, let's invite this person and let's talk to this person. And Brendan, Brendan threw out there like, you think we could get John Hattie to come speak with us? <laughs> I was like, well, we can ask. So it's a it's an amazing honor to welcome you here. I've read your books and I'm a huge fan. Um, so uh, to have you talk about best practices is really an honor. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. And as I'm sure you'll discover in the air, I love talking about this stuff. So Professor Hattie, you are without I mean, without question, sort of on the Mount Rushmore, sorry, American reference of of educators uh, in our in our world. Um, and so it's an honor to have you and your experience. I want to introduce Brendan super fast because I suspect a fewer people know who Brendan is yet. Um, Brendan was in the classroom for 25 years. He was an amazing educator, incredible results with his kids. He's recently joined Exemplars, but he's also one of the lead professional development providers for illustrative mathematics. He's working with the Vermont Mathematics Initiative and will soon be the co-president of the Association of Teachers of Mathematics in New England. So uh, Brendan has quite a, a resume of his own and enormous amount of experience as educators. And so with that, gentlemen, I thank you for your time and um, thank you, Professor Hattery, very much. Yes, welcome, John. And uh, I just wanna first clarify, I'm gonna be the um, co-chair of the committee, not co-president. I just have way too many things uh, percolating, <laughs> but thanks for trying to make me do that. Uh, we're always trying to find presidents of math associations. Uh, John, I'm really delighted because um, long ago when I first encountered some of your meta-analyses, uh, I think I pulled a quote about the biggest effect in our business is the expertise of our teachers. And it, it, I was immediately hooked. And I started to say to myself, I want to learn more and I want to know more about effect size. And so for our listeners today, I was wondering if you could start us off by just thinking about effect size and what is effect size? Yeah, Brendan, the question that we often ask is, you know, what works in the school? And it intrigues me that the answer to that question is almost everything. And so it didn't make sense to me that almost everything works. And so then in 1976, when I started my academic career, Gene Glass invented this thing called meta-analysis, which is based on effect sizes. And so kind of what it is, is someone comes along and say, for example, want to, this is, I know this is dear to your heart, Brendan, wants to know what the effect of, teacher, of student talk, discourse in the classroom is. So they do a study, you do a study, Brendan, in Maine with elementary kids, and you find out um, it has an effect and you publish it and you get very excited. And then along comes someone else in Melbourne, Australia, 
who is interested in productive discourse with high school students in a different subject. And they write their study up and publish it. And so on. Many, many people start to publish on productive discourse. And then along comes a meta-analyst person who says, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to collect all those articles that Brandon and all those other people have done and ask the first question is, overall, on average, how big is that effect? And to get that estimate of bigness, we use this thing called an effect size. And it really is like the Richter scale. It is a measure of magnitude. Um, is it a zero effect, a tiny effect, a medium effect, a large effect? And of course, we can put numbers to all that, but I'll, I'll pause on the numbers for a moment. But the second thing that a matter analyst does is say, well, wait a moment, does that average differ in America compared to Australia, with five-year-olds compared to 15-year-olds, in uh, maths compared to English? And so those are the two questions a matter analyst asks. Now, what I do, Brendan, is I collect all the meta-analyses and do a meta-analysis of those and also ask, Overall, how is the, the big is the effect? That allows me to answer the question I started with. What works best relative to all the things we do? And that's quite a different question. Because if you ask what works, Brendan, it turns out that 97 to 98% of things that we do to students improves their learning, which means that every virtually every teacher in the world can have evidence they're improving learning. It's a trivial thing to do to improve learning. But when you look at all the influences, and I have about 350 different influences, including student talk, then you can start to see the relative influence. And I'd like to think that was what my contribution is, is the effect size is a measure of magnitude, and it's a relative. The average effect turns out to be 0.4, and it's not a bad index. And if you're not getting 0.4, yeah, warning bells should go off, not necessarily because you're doing the wrong thing, you may be implementing it not as effectively. But if it's above that average, then you can say, well, I'm using a high probability intervention. I'm getting the kind of impact I want. Beautiful. And I'm so I'm thinking about relative magnitude. And I know um, before we started tonight, our attendees don't know this. Um, you sort of hinted at what is the effect size or what was the effect size of COVID? Um, and so thinking about that um, relative magnitude, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, it's a really good example. Like the, the question is, is that what was the effect on achievement of COVID, of the learning during COVID compared to what it was before? And there's, believe it or not, Brandon, there's already four meta-analyses from different parts of the world. It's about 16 million students. So it's, a, it's not a bad sample size. and all four claimed they were the first, and all four used different articles, which is kind of interesting. And all four came up with the same answer, minus 0.15. Now, on the magnitude of effect sizes, that's about the same size as what students lose over the summer. It's not a big effect at all. And so the, the question we have to pause and ask is, what did we do so well during COVID that reduced the effect? Now, I was in your country last October when your NAEP results came out, and I remember the headlines of the New York Times and your commissioner got up and said, isn't it terrible? It's awful. It's going backwards. We've got a major crisis on our hands. 
And I thought, well, interestingly, I wonder what the effect of NAPE was compared to the meta-analysis. So as you do over breakfast before I presented that day, I calculated the effect size for NAPE, and it's minus 0.08. So, Brendan, what did you do in the US that was twice as good as virtually every other Western country in the world? And it, my point is it changes the nature of the question from this doom and gloom. Now, don't get me wrong, Brendan, it was a negative effect. I'm not arguing we should go back to COVID. But it was not as dramatic. Now, I, I mentioned before the second question. If you take the top 75% students in the USA, you can't see a difference for the last 20 years. Now, the bottom 25%, it was quite marked. And that surely was uh, an effect of opportunity to learn, not teachers. So I'm disappointed that we have turned COVID into another way we bash up teachers and schools when we should be doing the opposite. And I think the biggest travesty of COVID is we learned nothing. We've rushed back to the old model. We did some really, really good things during COVID. Like We didn't cover everything. We did less and we went deeper. I saw more teachers and principals talking to each other about what was working for them and improving each other, that collective efficacy. I saw us teaching students how to work alone and how to work with others. I saw so many good things that were happening. Students not only demonstrate their incredible resilience, many of them became extremely efficient. Like I remember once when I was doing some work with a, a school, I was interviewing this 14-year-old boy, and I, I said, well, what happens in your school? And he said, well, at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock every evening, the teacher sends us the work for the next day. He said, I get up at 6 a.m. in the morning. I've done it by 8. I then spend the day playing with my friends. What do I do for five hours of school every day? Now, quite frankly, Brendan, he would be punished. He'd be asked to do more. And so I don't, I, I think we learned about efficiency. And I just think, the, and, I th and one other massive, massive one, and we were talking about this before we came on air, for teachers. Like, we know that the workload of teachers is quite intense. We know the workload of school principals. We know school principals do 40 things an hour. It's that relentlessness that is the problem. Now, I know in the regular school, if I take 10 things off that principal, they replace it by 10. In COVID, they didn't. They went and had a cup of coffee. They walked the dog. Mm -hmm. it, they left their meeting and they weren't inundated with a thousand things to do. And I think that they've come back and to the old world and said, I don't want to do this. I don't want the relentlessness. I want to have time to think. I want to have time to recalibrate my brain when I go from A to B. Singapore has done a very wise thing. They have mandated every, uh, every second Friday, the teachers must teach via COVID. They can't be in the room. Um, they, you know, they have aides to make sure that the kids behave, et cetera. But the kids work alone on Friday or work in groups on Fridays. And the teachers have that. And I'm arguing very strongly in Australia that we should be asking educators to go to a four-day week. So I think we can learn a lot from COVID. The effect was nowhere near as dramatic. And I wrote an article on this, which is free on the web, Brendan, and I called it Ode to Expertise. We really should celebrate the incredible expertise that educators showed during COVID. And I'm not pretending it's easy. I'm not pretending it was the right answer. But I think it's a really good example of the use of effect sizes. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought, too. And uh, I, too, uh, John, during COVID, I taught remotely. I taught remotely for an entire school year. Um, and one thing I noticed, yes, um, I, I felt like in the beginning I worked harder, I worked, but I moved to work smarter and I de-implemented. I, I never my class never had to line up in a hallway. 
We were not compliance monsters. We had uh, 20 to 25 minute problem solving chats, um, which of course I used exemplars tasks for. Um, and we didn't spend the number of hours waiting for learning to happen. Learning happened uh, in the hands of the students. We released control uh, for them. And I, um, I so believe, uh, like you talked about 75% of the students and the 25% of the students, that the, the amount of support that students needed was important. Um, and then we did. We, did, we came back and we uh, immediately reverted. We, we were sort of like this amorphous shape and we took on that shape of school again without thinking about uh, what we could de-implement, what we might change to improve learning. And so I guess one of my questions is, like, what, what can, how do we make a decision to de-implement uh, those practices that don't have a positive effect size? The big question. Well, you, you just had a slide up there, and um, Aaron Hamilton and Donna William and I have you know, used exactly what you said from uh, COVID to say this is the time where we should be looking at what do you stop? And you know, as we do our work with CORE and around the world in about you know, 15,000 schools, it's remarkable the number of things that happen in schools that are just inefficient. And the argument usually is, oh, but we've always done that. And like, you know, take testing. And you, you, you can imagine, uh, Brandon, with my background in psychometrics, I, I'm a fan of measurement. I have no troubles with it. But the number of times that a test is administered and I say to the students, what do you understand by that test you've just done? And they say, oh, it's done. Oh, have you interpreted it? Is it going to help you where you go next? It's an incredibly inefficient way of using the word. And so we spend a lot of time trying to say, well, if we are going to argue that schools have to implement new ideas, we also have to argue that we need to stop some. And so you know, in this book, you know, we, we actually looked a lot in um, engineering and in medicine about what they do. Like one of the biggest problems in medicine is you're feeling sick, you go to your doctor, they put you on a new regime of behaviors. I don't know about you, Brennan, but I struggle to do the things. I'm naughty and it's not in my best interest. And so yes. we looked at all that work about how they get people to change. And we, we just said, okay, the word stop is not the answer because people don't stop what they're doing. And so we looked at the four R words. How do you remove things? How do you reduce them? How do you re-engineer them? And how do you replace them? And we deliberately in our work go out and we work with teachers and principals. We do time and motion studies. We see what they do. And then we ask them, like, you've collected this data. You've been collecting it for the last 20 years. You're not using it. What would happen if you replaced it? And it's starting to get some traction. But it's one of the hardest things we do is to get educators. And I, and I ask your audience, think about some of, the th some of the things you've been doing. What would happen if you didn't do them? Who would lose? And if the kids don't aren't the losers, stop it. Oh, sorry, don't stop it. Replace it. Re-engineer. Yeah, and uh, it makes me think a, a good friend of ours, uh, Chase Orton, wrote this beautiful book um, about the the imperfect uh, math teacher. And he, he Chase always argues, um, who's it for? Who's it for? And sometimes when we're re-engineering, we get this resistance in the schools uh, because the school has always done it that way, as you said. There's so much invested energy uh, that we just keep doing things that aren't high yield or impacting learning or promoting growth. Um, so how do we how do we convince our schools? How do we convince our 
grade colleagues, our uh, schools, our school boards, our administration to re-engineer, replace, reduce, remove. Are some of those easier, John, than others? Well, Brendan, I'm going to be blunt. You've missed out the most important person. How do I stop you? Yeah. And we start there. And it, it is, it's a way of thinking. And like you just said, during COVID, you dramatically changed your thinks about teaching. Like in the normal classroom, we as teachers talk 89% of the time. We ask 150 to 200 questions that require three-word answers. During COVID, you couldn't do it. See, you can replace re-engineer. And so I have to pause and say to you, Mr. Individual, why did you go back to the old normal where you perform? Um, start with yourself and say, if you're not going to do it to yourself, I guarantee if I'm not going to change and replace and re-engineer myself, I can't ask you, Brendan, to do it. But you've got to start for the individual. Like we, we, all, we all know that all of us welcome change as long as it's someone else changing. It's us. I, I so agree. And um, sometimes we get locked in as maybe individuals with inside a bigger system. We seek permission. Uh, we seek um, uh, someone to allow us to do that. And I guess I looked up to the sky somehow there. I don't know why I did that. But we look well, for did. permission. But again, I hear from principals in your country so often, oh, we can't do this because it's mandated. And when I start working with those schools, I say, well, show me the mandate. And nine times out of 10, there is no mandate. It's a belief about a mandate. And they'll say, oh, my superintendent doesn't like that way. So I meet with the superintendent and the superintendent says, I've never said that. And so I'm questioning us as we think of the rules we prescribe ourselves about why I eat white bread, why I like McDonald's, all these kinds of things, which are, are very naughty. Now, who told me I couldn't have those things? Me. And so coming back and saying, who's giving permission here? So I give everybody permission on this um, WebEx today to question themselves and to spend time over the next 24 hours saying, I'm going to take this chunk of stuff out of my life and who, other than me, is going to notice? You can save an incredible amount of efficiency if we ask that. We've always asked the effectiveness question. Nothing wrong with that. But I want you to ask the efficiency question too. And I, I thank you. And I'm going to remove a whole bunch of things. I'm going to remove paying all my bills. That's going to be the first thing. Um, but thinking about effect and um, we live in this additive culture. And I know you hinted at it before. Um, how do we overcome that, that, this idea that we're constantly adding? We're adding to intervene. We're adding uh, small groups. We're adding interventions. We're adding new programming. Um, how do we help our system shift away from being additive? And you've missed out the one that probably drives me mad the most is we add to the curriculum. Oh, my goodness. Like, I've, I've just spent nine years in a, a chairing a government agency here in Australia, a federal government agency, and one of my pet peeves is we've spent every year, we've tweaked the curriculum. We've added more. And I said to the minister one time, minister, when he said to me, would you be willing to look at the curriculum side of things? And I said, minister, only on the condition that you allow me to take half out. And he said, oh, that's not a bad idea. It didn't take more than 10 minutes for everybody on the committees and the groups to say, you can't do it. Now, if you look at the curriculum in your country, and you know, Michael Porter did this a few years ago with Common Core, 
It's ginormous. And quite frankly, the kids don't need all that stuff. And so go back to COVID. We didn't cover all that stuff. We covered less and go deep. And I ask you, Brendan, when you look back on the times you went to school, it was that stuff you went deeper in, in your maths work. It's when you go deeper. Now, of course, to go deeper, you need content. But we don't need the incredible breadth of what we do. And so coming back to your question is I think we need to have a much more permissive culture, a much more open discussion in our staff rooms and, and in our various places we meet about what we don't do as much as what we do do. I think it should be a, a tit for tat. If you're going to ask me to do this, what are we going to stop? And I think we're going to be stronger about that because we are burning out our kids, our teachers, by having this notion that if I do more, I'll get better. It's, it's, it's like asking an obese person, just eat more. That's the wrong answer. We have to have that real skill to de-implement or declutter. Yep. And when we declutter, um, I remember reading in this wonderful book, Making Room for Impact, uh, a de-implementation guide for educators, this great um, Jackson uh, and McCarran 2018 quote that was, we need to give math teachers off-the-shelf lesson plans it has no adverse impact on the most effective teachers, and it made average and below average teachers more effective. So I started to think about when we give, we, we remove the cognitive load of lesson planning, and we can use a curriculum that it isn't added on, but it's streamlined. It actually can improve education for all with the talent of the teachers. And I didn't know uh, it doesn't it doesn't harm the students, John. I, I love Melanie's comment in the chat. You know, the right menu, the right portion size, and I think that's a really good notion. And and like, but here's another observation, Brendan. Like, I think I'm pretty good at searching literature for various influences. The one area that researchers have hardly ever touched is the effectiveness of lesson planning. And every night, every teacher goes home and worries about lesson planning. And we've virtually never attended to it. And I think that's fascinating. Now, here's the good news. I don't know about you, but I've been using ChatGPT and Claude and some of those other things to create lessons, uh, working with teachers. Ah, oh, wow, I am so impressed. Now, like every teacher in the world, they look at it and they want to improve it. And I'm happy with that. But that notion that we spend all our hours creating lessons, the other thing that we're doing here in a lot of our work is saying, let's do it as a school-wide venture. Let's have a school-wide lessons. Now, we don't just create them in teams, and we won't hardly ever allow teachers to create them by themselves. It has to be in a team. We use the backward design notion. And then, then at the end of it, we meet and we say, well, what was the impact of that lesson? We document it. We then file it away, and that's what comes out next year. It saves an incredible amount. Teachers love talking about creating lessons. They're a bit more reluctant to talk about the impact, but we ask them to do that too. And I just think that if we could have school-based curriculum planning, like you're suggesting, Brandon, we start building up a resource bank of that which we know has an impact, we could reduce teachers' times dramatically. Um, I like Ed reports in your country where it looks at alignment and rigor. I wished it looked at impact. And I think it could be easily done by asking teachers to rate the impact after they've used it. And I think we could serve our profession. And I ask all those out there who are in the research business, this is the most untapped research area of the lot, the area that teachers spend the most time worrying about, coming up with the best lesson. 
And we put it down to individuals. We have this concept I am not a fan of, best practice. I'm not a fan of best practice because it doesn't take into account the implementation. And it's the implementation that matters. So I ask them to look at the impact. So I would love to see someone take that on. And like Nicholas has said, the Tim study is a great resource for the effects. I think there's some really good things out there. But Nicholas, James Stigler is one of the very, 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 very few academics in the world that has taken this problem on. I just think that a whole, ask your researchers, ask the American education research, why haven't we got a special interest group on the effectiveness of lesson planning? It is the most missing gap in our business. John, I have a, an audience question. You mentioned that um, if, if you could do it, you would take out half the curriculum. Um, are there a couple specific things that you particularly are like, well, we just don't, let's just get rid of that. Are there, are there a couple that no, you've seen over the years? I want to go back to Michael Porter's work. What he did before, remember Common Core? Mm-hmm. It's kind of in the history. I know some states called it Communist Core, but anyway, it's a whole political thing. He got every curriculum in math and reading from all the districts across the U.S., and we're talking thousands. And he asked the question is, let's take math. What's the overlap between the content in the math curricula across all the curriculum in the USA? And on a 1 to 10 scale, the answer was 1 out of 10. So my argument is, no, there isn't. What is essential knowledge in Maine is not the same as essential knowledge in Texas. Like I know, for instance, when we did that comparing the U.S., Common Core and the New Zealand curriculum in the high school, you teach a lot of finite maths. We teach none of it. A lot of our high school maths and statistics, you don't see that as part of math. There is no such thing as essential knowledge, Jay. Um, and also, what's essential for Jay is not essential for Brendan. So let's stop this nonsense that it's essential. I kind of don't care. I care that Brendan and Jay and the maths community of the US have a robust discussion about the more important things that they worry about, and then we make decisions in light of that. I don't think it's a mandate. And if you look at students, you take any class of students, they are incredibly variable in their exposure to curriculum. So let's recognize that I don't think there is such a thing as essential knowledge. I think there is a passion that I want students to have about math, about music, and that's what I wanted to develop. And yes, passion requires knowing things, precious knowledge. I have no troubles with that. So no, I don't think we need to have a debate because the minute you have a debate about essential knowledge, you will increase the curriculum. And so it feels like you're um, talking about passion and passion for learning. And in- embedded in there, John, is this inherent um, student engagement, student confidence, um, which I would assume improves uh, the ability for a person to learn. I'm, I'm passionate about something. Uh, I engage with it more often. My confidence grows um, and we um, can, can show uh, a greater improvement. And so when we re-engineer schools, um, what, what are those components that we should try to do with those schools? Um, what are your suggestions based on your research to bring more engagement, more confidence to the learner. Um, how, how do we do that? Well, the key word in what you said there was the confidence to take on challenges uh, because that's the essence of passion. That's why our students play their video games. That's why they play their sport and their social life. They have a confidence to take on challenge. And remember, no student goes to school to learn that which they already know. It's what they don't know. So what it comes back to, Brendan, is a culture and a climate of high trust. 
it is okay in this class to go to the edge. It is okay to fail. Like when I hear parents and students tell, tell me they got 100% on a test, that tells me the test was too easy. And one of my observations, for example, is why is it that the majority of gifted students do not become gifted adults? Less than 2% of child prodigies go on to be gifted adults. Mm. Because when they become teenagers and they're asked to study things that are outside their expertise, they have no courage to fail. And what's more, they are terrified of the reaction of colleagues and their peers to them as if they don't get an A or a B and a C. Now, of course, Brendan, if I'm going to take you to the edge of your knowledge, say, in white water rafting, um, I'm going to have to be a very good teacher. I'm going to have to give you that sense that you can go down the rapids, but there is a safety net that at the time there is going to be that expertise there. So it's that skill to have a classroom client where errors are seen as opportunities, not as mistakes. Let me give you an example. There was a great study asking what happens in your class, Brenda, when a student puts their hand up and gives you the wrong answer. Up to 50% of the time, the teacher corrects that child. Up to 50% of the time, the teacher asks another student to correct that child. Less than 3% of the time is that error seen as an opportunity to learn. What are our students learning? It's not safe to be wrong here. And if it's not safe to be wrong, there's no learning. So it comes back to that self-efficacy, that uh, your work, productive failure, that notion that it's okay. And it's really scary. Like, I'm a granddad now, and I'm watching my oldest granddaughter, who's seven, um, moving through that compliance stage, realizing already that if she doesn't know the answer, look like she does. And that's just not what I want to happen. I want these students to be on that edge inquiring about these things, asking questions they don't know. Like how many questions does a class of students ask? A class of students ask on any one day about the work they don't know. Two, that's not the climate I'm in. Now, I bet you've been in classes and I bet many of the teachers on the web are in classes today where errors are seen as opportunities. And that is that is the essence of where I want to go. Now, not only can we create that, John, for our students and our culture of our classroom, but we as the, the teachers that are here in this EdWeb and the professionals, we have to create that with our teacher community. Um, and I guess I really want to know, like, how do we overcome um, what's in front of us? And I think about in, in your book, Making Room for Impact, the analogy is the Jenga block. Like, how do we how do we know which Jenga blocks to remove? How do we know which Jenga blocks hold up the structure so that we can maximize our learning? I mean, I know there are studies uh, about uh, the number of school hours, the length of a school year, um, and whether or not that impacts student um, achievement or learning. So how do we how do we do this with our colleagues? I can do it in my classroom with your advice. I'm excited to do that. And I'm going to run back and try it in the next school I'm in on Tuesday. Um, but how do we do it with our colleagues? Well, the first thing I want you to know, Jenga, if you, Brandon, if you've ever played Jenga with kids, what happens when it falls over? We laugh. Yeah. We get together yeah. and say, right. And then we start to rebuild it. Yeah. And I want to yeah. remind you what you said earlier about COVID. During COVID, yeah. We actually talked to our fellow teachers about what was not working as well as what was working. 
We talked about yeah. difficult kids that weren't turning their screens on and weren't doing these things. We were quite open in a mutual inquiring environment about solving a problem. Do you see that in your normal professional learning? Sometimes we don't. And I think this is an, and it's the same argument that I'm making here about the culture of the classroom is the culture of the staff room. Is there a lot of turn taking? Are the problems on the table to which there is multiple interpretations as opposed to a right and wrong answer? Are we talking about impact or are we talking about teaching? I'm not interested in talking about teaching. I'm interested in talking about the impact of teaching. And I, I know because we work in 15,000 schools a year, we can get those staff rooms, places where there are collective notions, where the word I is never mentioned. It's all we. Where we never get this nonsense where we say, oh, look, Brendan, you don't understand my class. Well, if you don't understand my class, I'm not explaining it very well. And we have teachers sharing, observing in classes, not observing the teaching, observing the impact. And this can happen and does happen where we have this mutual belief, collective notion that collectively we are going to make this school a place that's inviting to come to, that kids are making at least a year's growth. This can happen. Now, dramatically depends on leadership. It dramatically depends on the leader thinking aloud, the leader acknowledging they don't know everything, the leader creating that safe space where it's okay to fail. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. And I've even been in districts where the whole district does that. That's more rare. But these things can happen. It requires leadership. And I, quite frankly, I think the biggest problem in our profession is the courage to do this. It's, yeah, it's the, the courage. And I think um, I just saw someone in the chat use the word uh, grind. And you already, John, talked about leaders making decisions. And uh, during COVID, they, they could go out and walk their dog. And they didn't have the next email. Um, we have this problem of retention and attraction. You talked about retention and attraction of teachers, and we're probably headed toward a problem with leaders. So how do we make an impact now? We know, we know what the problem is, retention and attraction of leaders and teachers. How could we make an impact with this webinar, with this group of people? We have um, more than a thousand people that are going to watch this webinar. Um, so that they can go out and help us solve the problem of retention and attraction in our schools. What can we do? Well, well let me note um, that you know, during COVID and just after COVID, here in Australia, the, um, a group looked at one of the most high esteem professions in our community, and it was doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and teachers. When we asked teachers, um, they said no. About 40% said they were esteemed, whereas 90% of the public said they were esteemed. And my message being is what the public saw during COVID was the incredible expertise of teachers. It's not just babysitting. It's not what they remembered when they were kids of having a great teacher. You know, teachers deal with 20 or 30 kids, and we know some of them are really difficult. And I remember this one parent saying to me that I watched my child during a, a teaching in COVID, and I didn't realise he was such a horrible kid in the classroom. Well, that's normal for us. And I think we've got to start with ourselves, Brendan. We've got to stop saying that we're in this for the love of the kids and for the joy of the curriculum and all those things. We're in it because we have incredible expertise, and we do. And all my research says it comes back to the expertise of the teacher. But we are the very first to deny that. Why aren't we screaming from the rooftops? Look at us. We have incredible expertise. 
Not anybody out there can be a teacher. There is expertise. And I can document what that expertise is, and I'm sure everybody out there. The other thing I remind you, I think every one of us came into this profession for one reason, to have an impact on kids. I think we need to bring that back to the fore. Stop talking about what we do. Stop talking about how terrible it is and how horrible it is and the resources are terrible and the funding's awful and the tests are awful and start talking about we have incredible expertise to deal with all those things. Some of them we don't want, but look at this expertise. And if I have any impact here in Australia in my job with government over the last nine years, I want to reintroduce that word expertise. I think it starts with us. We've got to stop saying it's all about this other stuff. It's about us. And hey, I got the data. We're pretty good at it. We're very good at it. And I think this is the message we need to get across. Like, take any parent out there and say, well, I want you to come in and I want you to deal with these 25 five-year-olds for a day. They couldn't do it. I want you to come in and I want you to teach this problem in math. Now, if they're 99% of parents, they'll come in and talk to the kids for an hour and the kids will be bored stiff and then they'll blame the kids. That's not what we do. We're very smart at dealing with it. So I think it's us. I don't think it's out there. We're the ones that have to stand up and say expertise. Like I, I spent nine years in a government job and not once in those nine years did an educator ever walk through the room and ask for resources for expertise. That's a sad story. I think we're very good at what we do and we need to be standing on the rooftop saying it. I totally agree. And I think... Um... I know the effect size for collective teacher efficacy is really high. It's one of the highest. Uh, I know that um, self-reported grades, really high effect size. Uh, teacher estimates of achievement is really high. And I think about them sort of as bubbles floating in a room of expertise um, and giving ourselves grace and vulnerability and opportunity to look to each other as educators for our expertise. And I know a significant amount of school funding goes toward salaries, um, infrastructure, um, and only a small amount to professional learning, uh, a really tiny, bare, scrape the bottom amount. So I'm kind of wondering if teacher efficacy and this belief in not only ourselves and our colleagues uh, is important and um, teachers' estimates of student achievement and how we view our students, uh, how do we capture that uh, with so little support and funding uh, for professional learning and uh, having time and space uh, to work together with our colleagues? Right. You know, we've, we've estimated that about 2% of the funding goes to professional learning. And then every now and then some think tank comes along and writes a paper about how bad professional learning is. And therefore, we should ban it. We make it compulsory for kids to come to school because we think it's the best way for them to learn. It's no different from us that we have a learning environment. And yes, there's variability in professional learning, but I think you're absolutely right. But the, the other part I want to make to that, Brandon, and we have to construct time within the school day to do it. We can't just keep adding. And I have a campaign here in Australia, and we did it. We can do it during COVID. We can do it with good timetabling. We can do it a four-day week that teachers are in front of kids at most. We have to find out that we can't keep adding on and asking teachers to add more and more and more. It can be done. Some schools doing it now, whole systems can do it in the four days. Um, so I think that we have to be smarter and that's an investment in expertise, not just professional learning, but the time to do it. And I do think as a profession, we need to be screaming louder about creating the time, the resources, 
Now, I think we also, it's incumbent upon us to say we are prepared to stop doing these things to do this. Um, there is no question, like, would you want to go to your surgeon? Would you want to have flying in your aircraft where the pilot and the doctor said, I have never done a professional learning course since I graduated and I'm very proud of it. Now, I know teachers don't say that, but it is investing in us. It's our business is investing in learning. And so you can imagine I'm quite um, strong on the notions of how we do this. And like the influences you said, they're all about how teachers think. Yep. I, th I do think we spend too much of our time in professional learning on the, on the what and the, and the doing and not on the thinking. Like take one of the strongest influences of the lot, teacher expectations. We need to expose those in our professional learning. We need to be more aware of ours and our other teachers in the school's expectations for what a year's growth looks like because that makes a dramatic difference to the lives of students and the way in which we teach. That requires time. That requires expertise. That requires coaching. And so to make, to make room for that, um, and I think about Chesterson's fence, it's, I've let it linger here on the screen a bit, and I pulled this um, from Making Room for Impact, uh, this idea that sometimes, when, and I just love it, John, um, you know, uh, growing up on a dairy farm as a kid, we, we certainly made uh, decisions about where the fence was and where the bull was. Um, so I, I want to I shift my priorities in my school. I, uh, I want more of something, but I don't want to be additive. I want to re-engineer. And then I got to think about that fence. Um, can you talk about Chesterson's fence and the idea of being careful when you're de-implementing and thinking about this process? Yeah, it's, it's the same as when we're implementing that we should be, our focus should be on the impact of what it is we're implementing. It shouldn't be implementing something because it's good. Like, like I'm going to go back to your work. I, look, I've read all this work of Brendan's about productive discourse. I think it's wonderful. I'm going to do it. Now, you know that in the doing it, there is quality dimensions, there's fidelity, there's dosage, there's, you know, believe it or not, things never always go smoothly. So we focus on it. And so we're very attentive to what the impact of that new thing we're implementing. Chesterton Fence says we should be very, very aware and cognizant of the impact of when we pull down a fence. We don't pull it down because we don't like the fence. And like you, I've been, been worked on a farm for many years, had a farm for many years. Ours was beef, not, um, well, yours, yours obviously was as well. And I, I fencing was always my biggest problem because I've never had the courage to make strong enough. And never mind, I love electric fences. Back to the, yes. or the new one where they, they put the thing on the bull and the bull can't move despite the fence. But that's another story. My point being is you need to be aware of those consequences of your implementation. And like one of the mind frames that I think is very powerful is to ask, what evidence would you accept? You're wrong. Mm -hmm. What evidence would you accept? But by taking down the fence, that was a dumb decision. What evidence would you accept? By introducing productive discourse, you are wrong because you didn't do it well enough. You didn't do it enough doses, et cetera. And so it's that notion, don't just get rid of it because you don't like it. It's that impact that makes the difference. And that's the big message from Chesterton's fence. Yeah. Be aware of the impact that's going to happen. Don't just do things and stop things because you didn't like them. Yeah, and understanding sort of the story, like the history of why the fence was put there, um, right. why yep. it was, yep, and the, the, the social, the emotional, and the historical and the cultural reasons are, are so powerful. That's right. What impact has it had since it was put there? Yes. Yep.
and who's it keeping in and who's it keeping out and who's it limiting and who's it benefiting. Uh, it's so beautiful. And, and in education, we, we put up our fences. Our fences are our classroom walls. And we sometimes have to think about how do we deconstruct and go through the wall and, and work with our colleagues. And so as we reach this part in the EdWeb, John, I'm really thinking about, um, let's imagine I, someone gave John Hattie a blank check and someone in the EdWeb, please do this. Uh, give John Hattie a blank check. Uh, if you were to start the John Hattie School of Education, what are the practices, the must-dos that are going to happen in the John Hattie uh, School um, based on your research? Well, I want to come back to my school would focus first on climate. It's okay to be wrong here. It's high trust. I want to teach you how to work alone and I want to teach you how to work with others. I want to teach you how to work with your teachers. I want to teach you how to work with the technology. I think that you know, with chat GPG coming along, I really want to teach you about um, asking the right questions. I want to teach you about accuracy. How do you know it's right and wrong? I want to teach you about evaluative thinking. Is it good enough? I want to teach you about wise choices. Where do I go next? And I want you to do this orally more than written. Nothing wrong with written, but I think we underestimate the oral. Our, all our people in our society are in an oral community, and we hardly ever see that as, as a critical thing. Now, I don't want to shy away. I do think this precious knowledge. But I want to work backwards. And I want to say, over the next 10 to 12 weeks in my school, what is the concepts that you want me to learn? What is the knowing how? What are the big ideas? What is the notion of transfer you want? And then I'm going to say, and now what knowledge do you need? What skills do you need to do that? And that cuts about 80% of our knowledge out of the curriculum because I want my students to go deeper on many different topics. But I do want them to share in that going into that learning pit and getting dirty in their learning. I do care about them more than anything, feeling invited to come to my class. Like if I was your minister of education or your superintendent, the first law I would pass is I'd lower the school leaving age to 10. I reckon then educators would suddenly solve the problem of our job is to make it inviting for kids to come. Now, it's got some perverse effects. I'll acknowledge that. But let me just leave it at that. And so rather than the kids required to be there, if we said no, I want them to feel invited to come. I want to make them feel like every day they want to come and deal with this passion of learning about the things that we value. At times, I do want to sprint. At times, I want a marathon. I do want to vary it. But is it, And I also want to teach the students from day one to become their own teachers. Actually, that's easy. Five-year-olds are good at it. It's by age eight or nine, they sit there and think that their job is to watch the teacher work. I want to turn that on its head. And I want them to come back every day wanting to strive and drive their learning deeper. Now, I don't want to put this as some kind of Pollyanna utopia. I see it. What keeps me going as I travel the world is I see classes like that now. And so here's my frustration, Brendan. I think I'm pretty good at searching literature. When I ask how many studies have been done where we've got a problem, we identify a problem, we fix it. Billions. How many studies have ever been done and published in the world where they've identified success and scaled it up? Seven. 
Why aren't we studying our success? We have it around us. All around us, we have excellence. I've never been in a school yet where there aren't pockets of excellence. Why aren't we looking at that and scaling it up? That's what I want to do in my school. I want to scale up excellence. I love it. Go ahead, Jay. Professor Hay, that, that leads me, well, that takes me on a tangent. If you ever want to study success, I have a, quite a few schools who have been doing uh, performance tasks through exemplars who've watched their scales, scores go up. So you and I want to, you want to study success, you and I should talk. Oh, Jay, um, let me tell you, I, I, think every, I think every WebEx person on here will have examples of that in their schools. Why aren't we studying it? Why aren't we writing about this? Why it is we have to create a problem before we fix it? Why can't we just say we've got incredible success? And look, success ain't easy. It's not clean. It's messy. It's wonderful. Anyway, keep going. So you've written another book. You, we've shown one already. This is your second book, Visual Learning, the sequel, which is sort of the, the, the follow-up to the amazing book you wrote years ago. It's very dense. And there is a lot of information in here. What is your intention on how educators can use this book effectively? What are your thoughts on that? Well, for me, it's the anchor book that I wrote, you know, 2008, and then 15 years later. You know, I, I, and I called it a sequel, not a second edition, because it's more about the story than about the data. Um, and, Jay, you should be pleased that if I'd kept with the barometer and not switched to the thermometer, it would have been 104 pages longer. If I put all the reference in, it would be 140 pages longer. If I put all the data in, it would be another 150 pages. So be grateful it's only 497. All that data, by the way, is, is free on the web and, and under MetaRx. And so my point here was to focus more back on the story uh, underlying all these data. And my challenge to my colleagues is I'm giving the data away free. Come up with a better story. Because it is about the story. And I ask all our educators out there is to look at the story about what they think leads to the impact they have on their students. Stop talking about what we do. Stop talking about our teaching. Stop talking about those things. Start talking about our impact. And the other thing that's happened to me is over the last 10 years, I have been working with Corwin and probably around 600,000 teachers around the world. And it does involve collecting data. And you can imagine, I'm a data nerd. So um, I love looking at all that data, and quite frankly, sometime, someday, someone's going to come along with a different story, and I'm going to be the first to thank that person. So what is that story that brings it all together? So that's what I'm trying to get to in this book is what is that story? And, and I'm sorry, it's not a five-minute solution. It's a bit longer, um, but it does come back. Yeah, this notion of expertise, this notion of how we think, this notion of evaluative thinking. Now, my, my wife is a professor of evaluation, and she's writing a book on evaluative thinking at the moment. So I'm pressuring her saying, make it easy. What is evaluative thinking? Give me a simple way of saying it. And her answer is, which I love dearly, and I love her dearly, is evaluative thinking is when you're nosy. And you know those teachers and principals that want to get in and understand, you know, how's Jay thinking? Or what's standing in your shoes? Trying to, I'm trying to understand, Jay, why you made that mistake. Jay, why did you do that incredibly stupid thing just then? I'm not going to discipline you. I'm going to try and understand you. And we know those nosy teachers. And so it all comes down to being nosy. And we've built a culture of trust. So when you tell me that I've done something bad, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. Like, okay, let's, let's unpack that. I'm a teacher, right? And then when I first got your first book, I did what 
I've heard I'm not supposed to do, which is go to the back and I look at the table and I grab the top 10, right? And you, I've heard you speak in other places like, don't do that, right? So how, how would you recommend a teacher if, if I want to improve my math classroom, right? So how would I use this to sort of help me um, make my learning outcomes better with my students? You're right. That, that ranking, it served a purpose. It got attention. But it was the most misinterpreted thing of the lot. So about six or seven years ago, we abandoned it. We've never used it since. For the reason you said, like, some of the things near the bottom, Jay, should worry us dramatically, like teacher subject matter knowledge. And I've spent a lot of my time as a researcher trying to understand why teacher subject matter knowledge has such a tiny effect. I'm not saying we should abandon it. I'm saying we should understand it. I think I do now understand it. And it is really critical at the right moment. And so that listing was, it did lead. And the other problem it did is teachers were saying in principle, we do, we were implementing these things, therefore, what if you implemented them poorly? And so you're right. Now, my answer to your question, yeah, read chapter three and four. That's the big story. That's, it's, it's about how you think. Read those ones. The rest is the background and the buttressing of it. So you can save yourself a lot of time by just reading two chapters. So you're, it's the mindset of the teacher. Is, yes. Yeah. And, and one of the takeaways I'm having is that you're really encouraging struggle in the classroom. You're creating, yes. some, one of the audience members was mentioning zone of proximal development of really trying to put our students in that disequilibrium, challenge them, get them to think. And what's the value of, of putting our students in an uncomfortable place? Why is that valuable to them? I'll phrase it in a different way. No student comes to school to learn that which they know. Mm-hmm. It's what they don't know. And that is an uncomfortable place. I don't know about you, Chad, but I find it uncomfortable. But then I've been in this business long enough. I love this business. I'm happy with being uncomfortable. I'm happy saying, Jay, will you help me? Jay, give me direction. And I'm hoping, Jay, you're the kind of teacher that won't stare me down a blind alley. You'll push me in the right direction. And you'll let me do a little driving myself. Give me an L plate. But you'll be watching and you'll be checking. And every now and then you'll step in and say, no, I want you to go over here. That's what great teaching is, kind of like the GPS. Uh, you're there and I know you're there. It, I, like the problem with me as a novice is I don't know what I don't know. So I need you. And so I see this symbiotic relationship between a teacher and a student is very, very powerful. But as you can imagine in the GPS, I'm not there with my road signs directing you every inch of the way which is what some teachers do with their 89% of talking, et cetera, et cetera. And so I do think there are this notion of taking tentative steps into unknown territory. Like, believe I'm a little passionate about angry birds. I'm not going to play angry birds if it's too easy. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to play angry birds if it's too hard. I'm not going to play angry birds if it doesn't tell me what the success is of my next session. I'm not going to play Angry Birds if it doesn't give me opportunities to learn. And in some levels of Angry Birds, it takes me four or five days to get through it. In that time, no one is going to tell me I'm a dummy. No one's going to tell me I'm stupid. It's going to allow me to go to the web and look up cheat answers. It's going to allow me to ask my sons, how do I get through this next step? It's going to give me lots of assistance. It is okay to not know. And that's why I do it. And so you're right. And I know in the whole productive discourse, it is about stepping into territory that you're not very familiar with it. 
Because once again, when I look at Graham Nuttall's work, he showed that 40 to 50% of everything taught in every class, all the kids know. No mm-hmm. wonder students tell us classrooms are boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what we don't know. But it requires an incredible expertise of teachers to do it, and that's what amazes me that we have that expertise. John, one of the mindsets that I found in my classroom that I adopted was I told my kids 10 minutes into the very first day of school, the one thing in my room that I will never give them all year long is an answer. And what that did was it put the responsibility of getting the right answer and sharing answers and debating on whether the answer was right entirely on the students. And it was usually around the end of September, the kids would look at me and be like, that man ain't fooling. He literally is not going to tell us if we're right or not. And that was just sort of my, my trick to myself to sort of frame it, like figure it out. Brendan, we only have a couple minutes left. I want to talk to you, my friend. All right. Why you got Brandon? So I, I'm good with questions. I've ha- had a delightful time. Um, I know that uh, we've tapped into sort of your gift, John, and your gift uh, to education. And I can't say it enough how uh, beautiful it has been to be with you this evening and have our uh, guests with us. Um, I'm, I'm sort of struck by implementation, effect size, and that I, I am the driver. I am the one that has to do these things. I can't look to others. I can do them in my classroom. I can do them with my colleagues. And that I uh, am the we. I am the we. So that's my walk walk away from the evening. <laughs> Thank you, John. John, Thanks I guess my last question for you is, what's next? What's next for P- Professor Hattie? Besides my six grand grandkids, um, I'm spending a lot of time on what is a, a learning organization? What does a class and a school as a learning organization look like? Um, so it's going to the heart of visible learning. Is now Don't you think it's kind of ironic in the 2008 book I didn't have a chapter on learning? <laughs> um, so coming back and looking much more at that notion of what does it mean to be a good learner in this classroom? Awesome. Awesome. All right. I um, want to participate in any work you do on lesson study. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. And it seems so logical that that would have been something we've studied at, at length. But if, if that's something we really have neglected to, to research, I'm, let me know how I can help. That sounds fascinating. And Jay, at Exemplars, we're going to do that anyway. So That's right. <laughs> that's right. Awesome. Thank you all. Thank you for uh, joining us tonight. Professor John Hattie, uh, grandfather extraordinaire, uh, has joined us with his cup of coffee. And uh, I hope your bucket is full uh, and the effect size is greater than 0.4. Good night, all. Or good morning in Australia. That's right. Thank you, John, very much. This is truly an honor. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you would like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.